John, the book of 1 John, chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. 1 John, chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. I'd like to read that text of Scripture to you as an opening to our study. 1 John, chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. The text of the Word of God reads, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study this morning. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your eternal word. We ask once again that you would illumine our minds and open the eyes of our heart that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. Unpredictability. Most people don't like unpredictable circumstances. Some of you are young and perhaps going into school or your children are going to school and you'd like to know what school they're going to, what classes they're going to be enrolled in, what degree program or perhaps what path they're taking, who their teachers are. Employees generally don't like the feeling that they may or may not have a job next month or even next week. People would like to know that they have money in the bank to pay next month's mortgage or rent payments. Everyone would like to have relationships they can depend on. We bolster our confidence by purchasing insurance for health and car as an extra layer of confidence. We these days, you and I, when we book an airline ticket, we would like to know that our flight is not going to be canceled. It reminds me about a few months ago when I was flying to Israel with a group and we had to take COVID tests 72 hours before our flight. 
If you didn't pass, then, well, you would have to be left behind. And upon landing in Israel, you had to take another COVID test. And if you didn't pass, well, you would have to stay in your hotel room. Upon returning, we had to take a COVID test. And anybody who would fail out of the 30-some-odd people that were on the bus, if anyone would fail, we'd all have to stay behind before we'd enter in the U.S. And that is not to add on to the fact that my flight was canceled and I had to rebook and spent the night at SeaTac Airport because of some other things that had happened. But we don't like that feeling of uncertainty. There is a condition that has been coined with a word called nomophobia. It didn't exist some 30 years ago. Seems as if we've moved from clutching our blankets and pacifiers to now clutching our cell phones as security. The word was coined by the UK post office back in 2008 that characterizes people who have a real habit of checking their cell phones, checking those email messages, being sure that if they've missed a text or a phone call that they'll return them promptly, or maybe if you've left your cell phone at home or someplace where you don't know, you suddenly have a whole lot of anxiety. There's a lot of uncertainty when you misplace your phone and when there's chaos in your life. There's a trendy little acronym that's making rounds in some management circles, VUCA. That's what it's called, standing for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. The U.S. Army War College first introduced the concept to describe that new reality when there's a perfect storm of unknowns. Because we all like predictability or some amount of certainty in the future. Circumstances change, our economy changes, stock markets fluctuate, relationships change, disasters come and go. Who knows what's going to happen in our midterm elections, our country, what direction that's going to take. But there are no guarantees, real guarantees in life with the exception of what God has promised to us in his word. The word of God tells us in Isaiah 40 verse 8, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And here in the word of God, God provides for us assurances that he desires that we have, things that we can bank our life on, assurances of salvation, the assurance of answered prayer, and the assurance of God's protection upon our soul. And so we look at those assurances today, having confidence that no matter what happens in this changing world, this changing culture, and the changing circumstances of life, we can have assurance in the promises of the Word of God. So in verse 13, we begin with the assurance of salvation. As John writes here, he writes in verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It is not God's desire for genuine believers to go through life insecure, fearful of somehow losing their salvation, or trying to work to be good enough to gain entrance into heaven. It is not God's desire that we live without that assurance if we're a genuine part of the family of God. And while the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John so that people might come to salvation, he wrote the Epistle of John 
for those who have come to salvation to have assurance of salvation. He writes here, and his purpose is clear at the very end of this epistle, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, how does he provide that assurance for his readers? He provides that assurance through the epistle of 1 John by providing for them various litmus tests by which they can gauge the genuineness of their salvation. It was also for the purpose that they might discern who might be a false teacher who had come among the church. But his purpose was not a negative one. His purpose was a positive one, that they would have these tests by which they would be able to understand and be assured that they are a genuine family member of God. And while John gives several of these tests, these assurances of salvation, there are two that I'd like to highlight to you that are repeated throughout the epistle of 1 John. The first is that a true child of God loves God and loves other believers. And secondly, a true child of God lives in obedience to the commands of God. A true child of God, first of all, has assurance of salvation if they love God and love other Christians. If you turn back and look in the chapter right before, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. 1 John chapter 4, the text reads, chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The reason why you can love that irritating coworker of yours, or the reason why you can love that neighbor who parks all of their cars in front of your house, the reason why you can love your enemies is because love is from God, and God enables the transformed heart to love those who are unlovable. Verse 8. Chapter 4, the one who does not love, conversely, does not know God, for God is love. And he repeats that in verses 19 and 20. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The reason why we are able to love and have a desire to love God and love others is because God has loved us first and he has transformed our heart to be one that is enabled to love those who are unlovable. To love those who hate us, to love those whom we might not prefer to, but yet our heart, because our heart is filled with the love of God, desires to love. And that is characteristic of one who is a genuine believer. A second characteristic is, a second test for assurance of salvation is one who desires to keep the commandments of God. Desires to keep the commandments of God. Now, you and I all sin. No one is going to live according to God's commandments perfectly. But the general characteristic, the general direction of their life, the desire of their heart will be to follow and honor God. It's not an outward legalism. It is an inward desire of a transformed heart that loves the Word of God and loves to make God 
pleased with them. Chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. When we love someone, we want to please them. We want them to be pleased with us. We want the Lord to be pleased with our lives. When I was growing up, I grew up in the days before, you know, like many of you perhaps, in the days before parents would swipe their cell phones to show pictures, I believed God had a huge wallet. I had an imagination that was pretty big as a kid, and I imagined God had a big wallet because back in those days when we would take photos in grade school, well, parents would carry around little little pictures of their kids. And they'd be happy to show off those pictures of their kids. And I imagine God must have a huge wallet. And I imagine to myself, God must once in a while probably show off his pictures. So I imagine God would sometimes pull out this large wallet of his and say, Gabriel, Michael, come here, come here, come here. Look at these folks. And he'd flip out his wallet. And the wallet, we have those. remember those plastic foldable things? Well, they would fly out and it'd go through the clouds because he'd have so many children. And then he would go and show his most proud, the kids who he was most proud of, you know, the well-known evangelists, the, the missionaries who died. Look at, look at this, this one. Uh, and, and he'd show them off. And this one is, is going to places where the gospel's not known. And then he'd go on to the next picture. And I'd never want to be one of those kids that would be in his folder that would be all the way down there by which Michael and Gabriel would be so bored by then. Or I'd never want to be one of those kids. They say, well, this is Joe. Let's go to the next one. And I would want God to be pleased. I'd want to be up front, up front where he'd be pleased to show and tell of how faithful I was, even though I had many failures. When we love someone, our desire is that they would be pleased with us We want their face to shine upon us. We want them to be pleased. And that is an indication of the genuineness of our salvation. And just as we are to love God, it is the very love of God by which we have that assurance of salvation. For Romans 8, 38 tells us, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves his people like a parent who loves their children despite their failures. God will not allow anything to come between you and and him. There is an illustration that was written by David Prince in one of his books, and it reads, I know of a family who adopted an older child from an unspeakably horrific orphanage in another country. When they brought her home, one of the things they told her was that she was expected to clean her room every day. When she heard about that responsibility, she fixated on it and saw it as a way that she would earn her family's love. In other words, she isolated the responsibility and applied it to her existing frame of thinking that was shaped by life in the orphanage. And thus, every morning, when her parents came in her room, it was immaculate 
And she would sit on the bed and she would say, my room is clean. Can I stay? Do you still love me? Her words would break her parents' heart and eventually she learned to hear her parents' words that their love for her was unconditional, that she would never be forsaken. They would never return her. And she knew that she was an inseparable part of the family. Even correction and discipline didn't cause her to question her family's love. She understood that to be a part of what it meant to be a part of the family. And so, too, we have that assurance that the love of God, the love of God is forever upon us and nothing can separate us, having been adopted into the family of God by his calling and election. We are a part of the family of God. If we display that as a true evidence through the love of him and obedience to his word, we can have assurance of salvation. Secondly, we have the assurance of answered prayer. The assurance of answered prayer, verses 14 through 17. This is the confidence which we have before him, the text tells us. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. Now, the assurance of answered prayer comes because we have assurance of salvation and eternal life. That word confidence there, this is the confidence we have. It literally means freedom of speech. Freedom of speech can also be translated as boldness, can also be translated as openness. We have confidence. We can come before God in prayer, and ask of God whatever might be on our heart. We have that confidence. There's no fear of coming to God directly in prayer. Why? Because we're a part of the family. We're part of the family. You know, it's been rather hot this summer, many days over 90 degrees. Not as hot as last year in June when it was 110 plus, but maybe you are a child still living at home, and you are, were shopping with uh, your parents in the grocery store, and it's hot outside, and if you were to ask your parents, can you bring over some ice cream bars and say, can, can we buy some? It's hot outside, and if it pleases your parents, well, maybe they'll let you put in the cart or some popsicles or something like that. And you have that confidence, you can do that. But if I were to go up to a stranger and say to them, can I put my ice cream bars in your cart? They'd look at me and say, why can't you afford your own? Who are you? Or if I asked them for money, they would look at me. What what are you really going to use that money for? Because I'm not a part of the family. They don't know who I am. If you're a part of the family of God and you have assurance of salvation, you can have that confidence of going before God. And God, if it is part of his will, he may grant that according to his will. And the scriptures say, he hears us. And that's a very fascinating little phrase. The Greek word is akuo, and the parallel in the Old Testament is the word shema. Shema is frequently found in the Old Testament. It's found because it is a very well-known phrase. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, every devout Jew would repeat it twice a day, and mothers would whisper it into their children's ear. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word hear 
in the Hebrew is the word Shema. That is the parallel to the New Testament, that word, he hears us. Again, it's a common word that's found in the Old Testament scriptures. But it's not just to refer to someone who hears as in the reverberation of your eardrum. The word Shema can also mean pay attention to or focus on. So when Jacob, he married Leah and Rachel, you remember Rachel had pretty eyes and Leah didn't have eyes that were so attractive and he neglected Leah. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 33, Leah cries out and says, because the Lord has heard or Shema that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And so she named him Simeon, or Shimon, or Shema'on, a reminder of God's attention to the fact that she was unloved. God has paid attention to my cry. But it can even mean more than just paying attention to, it is responding to. It is responding to. That is what that word means. It is to respond to. That's why in the Psalms, many of the Psalms begin with a call to God to listen. In Psalm 27, verse 7, Hear, hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me and answer me. It says, Shema, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, hear, O God. Not only just pay attention to, but respond. It is a call to God to act now, God. And this word even becomes more interesting because in Exodus 19, verse 5, it tells us now when God says, now if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. And in the Hebrew, that little phrase, obey my voice, it says, now indeed, if you will indeed, shema, shema. It's repeated twice in order that it might be emphasized, but it has the idea of doing, of acting. And so it means to listen and to do from a human standpoint. Because there's no separate word in the Hebrew for just obey, obey me. No, because listening and doing are two sides of the same coin in the Hebrew mind. Listening and doing. If you don't do something, it means you really didn't listen. It's like when parents, you scold your children, and you say to them when they have done something wrong, why didn't you listen to me? You're not asking them if their hearing is okay. You're asking them, why didn't you obey me? And so let's look back at 1 John chapter 5. Look at this text. The text is in reference to God showing attention to and acting on what we ask of him if it is his will. If we ask of him, if we ask anything according to his will, this is what God does. He will pay attention to and act upon it to do that which we have asked. And if we know, because it is consistent with his will, that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. 
This is the assurance that the child of God hears. When you and I pray, it is like a child who comes before their parents. And if the child knows that this is what pleases their parents, the child can be assured that they will receive what they have asked for. Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Many times, as James reminds us, we simply don't have because we have not asked. Then what John does is he gives a specific example in the text of what we ought to pray for and what we ought not to pray for. What we ought to pray for and what we ought not to pray for in verse 16 and following. It says in verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, He shall ask God, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. Now, if you're of a Roman Catholic background, you might remember that they will categorize some sins as venial or less serious, and some sins as mortal, which are more serious, things like, things like, you know, murder, etc. Some may believe that there are some like that that lead to, 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 to that type of thing, but I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. There are some sins that God chooses to put people to death, such as Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, or such as in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where there were some who were taking of communion in an unworthy manner because there were all sorts of problems in the Corinthian church. There was selfishness. There was the parading of spiritual gifts. There were lawsuits. There was immorality. There were divisions, all sorts of problems and issues that they had. And God put some to sleep, putting to sleep as a euphemism for death. I think perhaps it is best to understand that John here is referring to two groups of people, though, two groups of people, those who are fellow Christians and then those who have been warring against Christianity, the Christ deniers or the Antichrist, two separate categories of Christians. And I believe the principle here that John is trying to communicate is that when we observe fellow believers, fellow believers who are caught in sin, we're obligated to pray for them. We're obligated to pray for them. We're not simply to feel sorry for them or bemoan the fact that they're caught in some sin, but no, we are called to pray for them. Maybe they'll recognize it as a sin. Maybe they have a temper problem, or maybe they're selfish, or maybe they're struggling with some sort of addiction or whatever. They, 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 desire, they desire to overcome it, but they have difficulty, and so we're obligated to pray for them. But as we already know in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, that John was writing about those who had come into the church and had left the church. They were antichrists, that's what he calls them, or Christ deniers. And this is what I believe is referring to when John references a sin that leads to death, the utter rejection of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. There were those who were false teachers who had come into the body, had come into their midst and their doom because they denied who Christ was and what he has done. Their doom was already spelled out. And so our time is to be spent praying for our fellow brothers and sisters who are caught in sin, that they might walk rightly with God, while those who have departed... The subjects of verse 16, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests of this. 
are those who would be the purveyors of a false Christ, the denial of Jesus as the Messiah, leading to what is known here as second death. The second death, referred to four times in the book of Revelation. The second death is what unbelievers will face at the very end. And so God desires that we have assurance of salvation as well as the assurance of answered prayer. If we're a part of the family of God, we can come to God and ask of God and pray for our fellow brothers or sisters and ask of God that God would bless, that he might be made great, and we can have that assurance of answered prayer if it is according to the will of God. But thirdly, God provides for us a third assurance, and that is assurance of God's protection, verses 18 through 20. Verses 18 through 20, the assurance of God's protection. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ, that is the true God and eternal life. The genuine Christian is protected. Their soul is protected by God himself. There is no such thing as a genuine Christian who has an unbroken pattern, an unrepentant pattern of sin, a lifestyle of sin. We know that because even though it may seem like that in verse 18, it can be a bit confusing, but the verb form of sins there, we know that no one who is born of God sins is this present active indicative meaning that it has an ongoing pattern and practice of sin. If you look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, it's Laid out clearly there in 1 John chapter 3, verses 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. In other words, no one who is a child of God has an ongoing practice of sin that is not desiring to turn, not desiring to repent. Because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin. In other words, he cannot have this ongoing pattern and lifestyle of sin because he is born of God. And in case anyone is confused, John writes in verse 10, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. In other words, it should be obvious to us all. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. You see, it doesn't matter if someone says, Well, I adopt this particular creed or I serve here in the church, or I grew up in the church, or I made a decision in the past, or I've been baptized, or even whatever it might be. What matters is the pattern of life that is displayed as a fruit of a genuine, transformed heart. Because the one who is not born of God lives in sin. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is the extent of the depravity of man without, an unre- without a regenerate heart, without an insight into his truth. Until the love of God came, despite who we were, We were people 
who had our fists raised to heaven. God did not save you and I because somehow he looked down and saw what cute humans. He didn't look down from heaven and saw how delightful you are or how well behaved you are and choose to save you. He chose us despite our anger, our vitriol towards God. As we rebelled against God, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And those who are born of God are wholly different. They have a new heart, a new life, a new righteous way of desire of living. Unless Christians fear Satan, John leaves this little note. The evil one, chapter 5, the evil one does not touch him. The evil one does not touch him. You see, those who are Christians, those who are Christians cannot be possessed by demons or even partially possessed by demons. Those who are Christians cannot be dragged away somehow in hell. The power of God will keep them safe. There is a wonderful word picture in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 6. I'd like you to look at that passage because it paints for us a picture that really illustrates this idea of God who protects our soul. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17 Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. The writer and the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 6, verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise and unchangeableness of his purpose. Right? God desires to show to the heirs of the promise and the unchangeableness of his purpose. Okay, his purposes will not change. Interpose with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, those who are believers who have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement, be encouraged to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope, verse 19, we have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The picture that is presented here is fantastic. It is the picture of a Christian soul which is chained to an anchor running all the way into the Holy of Holies in heaven where Christ has entered as our high priest forever. And your soul can never be dragged away and there is assurance of salvation guaranteed for the believer. You know, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, um, for he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And I always encourage our students at our church, I tell them, you know, throughout life you're going to fail inevitably you're going to fail you're going to sin and fail and you're going to disappoint god you'll disappoint others but pick yourself back up and continue on and god don't ever give up on god because god will never give up on you because he who began a good work in you he is the one who will bring it to completion he who began the sanctifying work in you the salvation that began in your life, even though you may fail, even though you may fall, even though you may disappoint God or others, God will someday bring you on and glorify you in the end because he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion. The child of God has assurance that God will protect their soul. And we know, the text says, we are of God and the whole world. It says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's what it is. Even though there's this world, this world, when we pick up the newspaper and we see the wickedness, the sin that is there, we see the war, the devastation, we see the values of the world not going towards God whatsoever. We know that Christ... We know that Christ is still in control, even though this world is in the power of the evil one. Even though we know that this world, John mentions the Gospel of John, that the prince or the ruler of this world, Satan, we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Even though the waves might crash against our values, even though a stand that we take for God might be wholly against what our peers might believe. Our soul is anchored in heaven. We have assurance of not only our salvation, but God's protection of that. John doesn't want his readers to forget there are things that are assured in this world, and they are the things that are found in the Word of God. And he gives one last warning, verse 21. Little children, guard yourself from idols. Now, why does John end his epistle like this? It seems almost to be out of place in the flow of thought. But when you look at the epistles of the New Testament, there are always final greetings, final blessings, final prayer, and the like. And we know from the Old Testament the seduction of idolatry that it had been upon the people of Israel. Israel had come out of Egypt, and they wanted to go back to the idols back there. We see the idolatry of the people in the land when Elijah in the day and the prophets of Baal, we see the idolatry of many of the wicked kings of Israel who had bowed the knee to Molech and to the Asherah. John's ministry was also very familiar with Ephesus. There in Ephesus, the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis or Diana, thousand prostitutes would come down in Corinth and ply their trade there, wherever in the city of Corinth as well. The warning was be on guard. Be on guard not to allow yourself, not to allow yourself to bow to the idolatry of the day. Years ago, I was doing some missions work in Nasik. Nasik is a city in India that was so spiritually dark, it was known as the city of temples. And there were numerous temples. You could go and block upon block, every single block had a temple, had idols and altars, whether it was in the high mountain locations or in the city itself. Nasik is considered one of the four holy sites in India where every 12 years there, were, there will be millions of Hindus and people who will gather to wash themselves in the river, believing that they would cleanse themselves from their sin and shave off the hair on their body. Every hair would represent a sin. They would gather at this festival called the Kumbh Mela, the Kumela boasts actually the largest gathering, the human, largest human gathering of people in the world. Encyclopedia Britannica tells us that in 2019 there were 200 million Hindus that gathered. And on one day there were 50 million on the festival's most crowded day. Hinduism has some 330 million gods. Unfathomable. But the largest idol factory is not in India. The largest idol factory in the world is in the human heart. 
wherever we value, whatever we desire more greatly than God himself, is an idol that we have bowed down to. Whether it is our family, our job, our money, our pleasure, our comforts, mostly ourselves, our pleasure, our desires. He warns against the idolatry of the heart, the idolatry that they might face. He warns because he desires that we live a life commensurate with the calling that we have received. And here at the end of John's epistle, God's desire is that we all know and have assurances. Assurances of salvation, assurances of answered prayer, assurances that our soul is tied to heaven and God's protection of us is going to endure. If we were to die tonight, do you absolutely know where you will be tomorrow? One of our leaders just texted me yesterday to tell me that his father had passed away. He was older, and it was a sad, very sad time. But he was comforted by the fact that his father knew the Lord. At the funeral of Ronald Reagan, his son, Michael, he described the greatest gift a child can receive. And these are the words that he said at the funeral. Quote, I was so proud to be Ronald Reagan's son. What a great honor. He gave me a lot of gifts as a child, a horse, a car, a lot of things. But there's a gift he gave me, and I think is wonderful for every father to give every son. Last Saturday, when he closed his eyes, that's when I realized the gift that he gave to me, the gift that he was going to be with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He had, back in 1988, on a flight from Washington, D.C., to Point Mugu, told me about his love for God, his love for Christ as his Savior. I didn't know then what it all meant, but I certainly, certainly know now. I can't think of a better gift for a father to give a son, and I hope to honor my father by giving my son, Cameron, and my daughter, Ashley, that very same gift he gave to me. I know where my father is at this very moment, that he is in heaven. I can only promise my father this, Dad, when I die, I will go to heaven too. And you and I and my sister Maureen, who went before us, will dance with the heavenly hosts of angels before the presence of God. We will do it melanoma and Alzheimer free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the greatest gift that you have granted to us, the gift of your Son, the gift of eternal life, the gift of grace to all who will repent and believe. That free gift is available to all who would come to the foot of the cross, kneeling, recognizing that they are sinners who can do nothing to save themselves. And I pray, Father, for all of the parents who are here, that, Father, you would place on their heart that desire to give that same gift to their children, 
to pass on the gift of the gospel message. It is you who causes individuals to come to you. We pray, Father, for open hearts that you would save those who do not know you. And Father, I pray that you would be glorified and honored in all that is done for you. In Jesus' name.